On today's episode, we're going to speak with Lisa Morris and Jason Spafford, who've been traveling the Americas on their motorcycles. They'll soon be heading to Africa. You'll hear a little bit about their travels, and they've got some tips for you as well if you're thinking of doing something similar. We're also going to talk with Royal Enfield as it makes its corporate move into North America. Does that mean adventure bikes for us from Royal Enfield? Well, stick around and find out more. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Said Simon. Elizabeth Martin. My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Available at www.greenchiliadv.com. Lisa Morris and Jason Spafford call themselves Two-Wheeled Nomad. They originally set out from the UK on a motorcycle trip to the Americas. And they were supposed to do the Americas and then go home, sort of a reasonable length trip. But since then, they've fallen into the rhythm of the road, and the trip has kind of become this indefinite duration. So in my mind, Morris and Spafford have sort of fallen into the roles of that original moniker, Two-Wheeled Nomad. I spoke with Jason and Lisa from the spot they're staying, at least for now, in Canmore, Alberta, Canada. Jason, Lisa, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Where are you guys now? Uh, we're in Canmore in, um, in Canada. It's very close to Banff for those people that don't know where Canmore is. It's just about wintertime there, isn't it? Um, it's, we're, actually, we've been having great weather, and just now it starts to rain. So, mm-hmm. But it's still in the, uh, I would say, the high, medium to high 80s at the moment. So not quite. We've not quite started to uh, experience the cool weather yet well i think we spoke um i think it's been two years now it's it must have been close to that yes yeah. if memory serves me correctly you were in south america when we spoke and lisa you were a pretty new rider i was um 
I don't know how far I've progressed, but I am a little bit better than I was. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to feel different now. I mean, so much has happened. So why don't we just do a, like sort of an overview of where you guys went from the last time we talked? Okay, so we we took a container ship. We actually went with the bikes uh, across the Atlantic to Montevideo in Uruguay. We then traveled south to the tip of South America, and then we meandered our way north until we got to the top of Alaska in Prudhoe Bay, and now we're on our way back down to the lower 48. So you guys, that's the whole trip. That, that isn't, I think when we talked, you, had, you were not long off the boat. No, we weren't long off the boat, no. And our intention was to just do the Americas, but I think this is probably going to end up being a round-the-world trip. But, you know. we, and we, we anticipated as well 12 to 18 months, I think, on the road. I think that's what we said last time. But we're um, over two and a half years now. Right. So you've, you've yeah. clearly stretched that just a wee bit. My yeah. name is not Captain Slow for nothing, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you've given up on a return time, I assume. This is it. <laughs> you've given yourself to the road. Uh, it feels that way. Yes, definitely. You know, I'm curious about that in particular because we do see that as a, I hate to say a trend, but I mean, it does happen to people, doesn't it? I mean, you know, people yourself that you've bumped into on the road, the same thing has happened to. You guys didn't plan it. You just came out and started to ride. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we didn't anticipate how far it is to go from the bottom to the top. And also there's so much great stuff to see and and great people that we've met that, you know, you, you end up getting stuck in places. That's what we found. And, mm. you know, that was a good thing. Um, you know, we'd like a place or we'd get to meet some people. And, you know, before you know it, two weeks, three weeks has gone by and you've not even moved. So we, we're, we're definitely on the slow end of the spectrum when it comes to motorcycle travel, that's for sure. And I guess it took us nine, best part of nine months to leave Argentina which um, you're crisscrossing Argentina through Chile as well. So after nine months, I don't, I don't know, you just um, you just felt like there was no point rushing after that. We, we just thought we'd maintain the same pace. And, di- you know, Argentina was a very distracting place. <laughs> it's a, It was good, wasn't it? Yeah. I know that it was sort of open-ended, you know, as far as there wasn't a hard deadline at the end. And you don't really have anything you're returning to. It's not like a job's been held open for you that you're, you're or was yeah, it? No. And yeah, no, actually, yeah, I was on an 18-month sabbatical. And after 14 months, we were still in South America. So I, um, yeah, just tended my resignation. Oh, that's right. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah so so that's it. When, as soon as you did that, that's when you know that there's nothing to go back to. Correct. Except your family. Of course. Have you been back since at all? Yeah. Yeah, we have. We both went back um, last Christmas. Yeah, we went back. When we, when we crossed the border from Mexico into the U.S., uh, we'd been on the road 21 months. And because we were in the bottom lower uh, left-hand corner of the United States, we arrived in, I think it was late October, mm-hmm. and the snow was starting to fall up in Colorado, so we couldn't go up into the mountains. And even if we hugged the coast, we would end up hitting bad weather up towards Oregon, Washington, and obviously into Canada. Um, because we took so long to get from the bottom to the top, the seasons didn't align anymore. So we were pretty much stuck in the bottom left-hand corner of the United States. And we just thought, what a perfect time to just, you know, have a break, um, go back to the UK, see family and friends that we hadn't seen for 21 months and then come back again. We were definitely quite keen to catch up with people. And 
and it was it was also um, time to recalibrate and reset the appreciation clock. I, I felt like um, perhaps I was at risk of being disinherited as well if I, you know, <laughs> didn't go home. So Is that a big that concern? A, <laughs> 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 I, thought, I thought that was reason enough. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was really nice to see our family and friends after all that time, for sure. And then I went back recently for 10 days for my mum's 60th, and I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And my sister flew in from Australia as well, back to England. That was nice. But I think I think we'll pl- plan to go home as well again, um, just for a holiday, though. Just fly back to England, a holiday from the holiday for uh, Christmas again. It just seems a really nice time of year to you know, take stock and catch up with everyone. I think a lot of people will be wondering, how can you do this? How can you be flying back and forth and everything when you were on this extended vacation? And we'll get to that. Um, but I sort of want to go back to your style of travel, because you, you mentioned about your hanging out in places for a while. That's not really how you planned it to begin with, was it? No, it wasn't. So what makes you fall into that? Are you meeting up with people that you're meeting through the internet that are motorcyclists, or are these locals that you're meeting as you're going through places? Um, yeah, we we we've met people from all different sort of um we've, we've met people yes. from horizons unlimited through the communities we've met social media uh, pe- people on the side of the street who you get t- chatting to and they say you know if you want a place to stay we've got a place you can stay at and we've met people through just walmart parking lot yeah walmart parking lot was, <laughs> was a, another quite recently we we we, were, we pulled into walmart and um this gorgeous lady called Wanda started chatting to Jace, and when I won, and I when I came out with all the shopping, we just had a, a roof over our heads. Uh, she, she was prepared to cook us a meal, open her home. You know, we, it was, it's yeah. so overwhelming. Even when that happens, you know, after all this time, it, it just yeah, it's, it, it's very humbling. It's very it? humbling, and you know, just a conversation in 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 a parking lot, and um, you know, we met this great lady who was fascinated by a story. And um, and she said, "Come and stay at my place." And I said, "Are you sure?" And you know, we can camp in the back garden. She went, "No, I'll have none of that. You'll you'll stay in my house, and I've got some wine, and I'll cook you a meal, and you can tell me some stories." And so, yeah, it it happens like that a lot. Yeah, it's very random, isn't it? Yeah. And other times less random. So other times when we know that there are various people who are aware of our trip through Facebook, for example, they will. Um, you know, go out of their way for us to come and visit. So we met a whole load of guys in Wasilla called the Fishhook Fatties. Um, hello, everybody <laughs> in the Fishhook Fatties. <laughs> it was so good, wasn't it, to make some really fast friendships. They weren't the only ones, of course. Um, but we um, we hung out with them and they really gave us an Alaska's, you know, an Alaskan's Alaska of, in terms of the experience. And we, we, fact, we actually ended up doing, was it at least 5,000 miles? We like, did 5,000 miles in Alaska, and there's alone. actually only two roads that we didn't actually do in the end. And a lot of those that time was spent actually with this motorcycle group called the Fishhook Fatties. So. And at that point, we'd worked out we'd done 45,000 miles. And so that was like a ninth of our trip just in Alaska alone. In three weeks. In three weeks, yeah. sorry, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is a heck of a lot for us. <laughs> so, so this is a, a rough, tough motorcycle gang called the Fishhook Fatties? It is, yes, yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> we're talking beards and uh, we're talking bikes hydro dipped in plaid and tons of beer really that's all there is to it isn't there yeah there were a good bunch <laughs> beards of and beer yeah. <laughs> not not the ladies <laughs> do you always say yes when somebody offers you a place to stay um no not always but it's very rare that we we turn 
uh, an offer down. Um, I'm a, I like to think I'm a pretty good judge of character, and most people that come up and talk to us uh, are genuinely interested and genuinely nice people. So I've not had a bad experience yet. So I'm either a really good judge of character, or you know, there's there's lots and lots of wonderful people out there, and I think it's probably the latter. That's a warm and fuzzy thought, I guess, that, that I would rather go with as well, is that, uh, yeah, that, uh, that people are generally good, and, and that's what you're going to hit if you're out there all the time. And, and really, you've got to be a pretty good judge of that by now. I mean, how many different places have you stayed at, do you think? Oh, I wouldn't like to think how many. Yeah, um, I don't know, lots. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we um, there was, there's quite a few people that follow us now on Facebook, so... When people had suggested we stay at their place, then we've always made a note of that because it's always useful if we, we need a place to work on the bikes as well. Um, it, it's not just not just a place to get, you know put our heads down, but maybe do a bit of maintenance as well. So it's always great to have a roof where I can I can work on the bikes rather than try and do it out in the street. So that, a lot, that along with experiencing their corner of the world and you know meet, meeting you know fresh people and of course we're Jace as you're well aware together 24 7 so just to have a break from your marvelous other for a <laughs> night is, is often very welcome yeah Jim. yeah different different company is always he's always welcome it's a major so. plus yeah yeah so um, uh, on that uh, raw episode that we recorded at the, in the, in the cusp um, Horizons mm-hmm. Unlimited meet, where I met you guys there uh, a couple of weeks back, we talked about just this about the exchange between staying at someone's place and what you get out of it and what they get out of it. What do you think that people are getting out of it when you stay at their place? Well, I ask, I've asked this question lots of times, and initially my, my conscience was very much, "Wow, you know, what's the first thing I can do to start paying this back?" in terms of their hospitality, how can I reciprocate if I don't have a home to invite them to? You know, we physically don't own a house to live in. Um, and, and I guess some of, some of the answers that have, have come to light and surfaced are, are along the lines of, well, actually, um, Lisa, we, we, we can't necessarily drop our lives into a few boxes, into the back of two panniers and a roll bag on a, on a motorcycle. And, and go off for months and months at a time. So you coming to us and I, think, I guess telling a few stories and um, in in terms of just living you know, vicariously just, just describing yeah, yeah describing what we've been through is is a welcome interruption for for some people you know others can't leave their house you know for long periods of time and you know from the comfort of their armchair they're getting to experience you know, a version of this trip, you know, not just through us, but through lots of people doing all kinds of different trips. And we just, um, sometimes we're just in the right place at the right time. And, and you know, it's, it's always unconditional as well. People never, ever want or expect you to, you know, to to uh, have to reciprocate or, or, you know, we of course the offer is always there when, when, um, um, when people you know. do come to England and we, we do, uh, we have a base again, then then that goes without saying it's... Um, you know, it's a, it's an offer that's always there for everyone that's ever given us the time of day and smiled and helped us out. But yeah, I think um, I think does that have I answered the question? <laughs> I, I we we always offer us, you know, I I'm um, I'm always willing to help out. So I try and do if people want me to do stuff, then I'll I'll try and help out. I know it, it's it's sort of my little way of of giving something back, but you know, over over the over the time we've been traveling, I think the way I look at it now is is paying it forward. 
so that you know somebody will will give give me their time um give me a roof over over our heads and um and the way i pay it back is by by giving it to somebody else so i'm just paying it forward uh the best the best way i can really yeah sometimes so. if we you know, come across um people where we can help out with you know if if they've got um, a personal endeavor or a professional um endeavor and we can look to try and help them in some way then we absolutely will as you know jason flies a drone and he's an amazing photographer so there's lots of different ways you can look to try and help people in that way as well yeah i was i was just add to that that um where we're staying at the moment there's there's two other travelers and they had a problem with their bike and i managed to fix it so in a way i'm paying that forward you know the people that help me i'm now helping other people so that's the way I like to think of it anyway and how it works for me and and how it um and how my conscience how I can feel comfortable with people's generosity that sometimes feels like they're giving more than I'm giving back so um yeah I kind of think when somebody sees you in a parking lot like that and talks to you, it's almost it's almost a bit of a selfish reason, you know, like they, they want to get your story. <laughs> you know, they, they want to find out. I mean, and, and I think that's the same with all of us. When we see something that we're interested in and that captures our attention, the thought that, wow, I could have these people over for a night and hear this incredible story. I mean, I can see that being a huge attraction for most people, anyone with an interest in things, especially when it comes to travel. But how do you know when you overstay your welcome? How do you know when enough is enough? Yeah, this is, this is the difficult part. And to be honest, we don't actually stay common very sense, long. Yeah, common sense, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we don't yeah. stay very long. Um, I think the longest we've uh, longest we've stayed is maybe two weeks. And that and that's quite. And and no, a I've long always period, I've it? always voiced I've always said. Or I've got a feeling from that person that it, they're, they're quite comfortable with that time period. Or I've actually verbalised that and said, you know, I need to work on my bike. Is 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 two weeks going to be okay? I'm perfectly cool if you know if you think that's too long. And most of the time, well, I think all the time, I've I've always had a positive response. Yeah, no problem. Stay as long as you like. I think you generally get a feel. Yeah, for it, how long a person expects you to stay. And as well, I would say we're extremely conscious of the fact that we know what it's like to have people in your own home, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's you're in somebody else's home, so to be really well behaved and tidy and, ha- you know, be a good house guest and do your fair share of the, the washing up or, or just hoovering around and, and t- you know, folding, wash, I don't know, any, anything to, to try and help. Just help to show out. your appreciation. Yeah, and paying yeah. our way with food and, and all the rest of it. Um, just... Yeah, I, I, we, we I guess don't. We don't. Helps, act, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> it, it help. It helps. We we like to. Um, we don't. We don't expect people to feed us. So we either offer to give some money for collective, yeah, collective meals, or we just buy our own. So we try not to take advantage of. We never people. take advantage. Well. When I say try, yes, I'll reword that. We don't take advantage, put it that way. Or we don't like to think we... Yeah. yeah. No, we don't. Okay. I know what you're saying. Let's leave that there. (laughs) How much camping are you doing now, as opposed to staying at places or hotels? Um, Since we've crossed the border into the US, we actually haven't done that much camping. We've, like I say, we've been given... It's been sporadic, hasn't it, in Canada and the US. We did lots in Central America. 
and and then through having you know a pretty good um, network of contacts in in the, the US and Canada, it's been it's been quite it's been brilliant, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's really helped us out financially because our budget um, a day was fifty dollars. That was food, fuel, and accommodation. So that was fuel for both bikes through Central America and Just. South America. And that was pretty doable. But mm. as soon as you cross the border into the U.S., you can't even get a motel for that kind of money. Even so. when you shop at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, we're, we are eternally grateful for all those people that have helped us out um, by providing a roof over our heads through North America because it's for, for us it was very expensive. I think it was Graham Field that once said um, – and I agree with him. He said, oh, I've, uh, he, he has in the region of a few thousand friends on his Facebook. And he said, gosh, I, I would love it to one day for everyone to come around and have a cup of tea. But they better not all come around at once because I wouldn't have enough tea bags. <laughs> I would totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, for bikes, you guys are riding uh, an F800. I think, Jason, or at least you were, an F650. Yep. Or sorry, was it a G650? No, it was an F. You were right the first time. F650. Mm-hmm. Um, how have those bikes been holding up? Um, I've done a lot of repairs on mine, uh, and Lisa's almost tired. as much. Yeah, she needs um, an I'm on my fifth water pump. I'm on my fourth set of steering head bearings. I'm on my uh, second fuel pump. I'm on my third stator. Uh, the rotors on my bike collapsed. The rivets basically came apart because they're floating discs, so I had to have new discs. Luckily, I could do all this work myself. Otherwise, well, I think we'd be broke. Then on Lisa's bike, oh, and the shocks. Well, I was expecting the shocks to go anyway um, over over time. So we, we've replaced the shocks. I snapped mine a couple of times, didn't I? The back one. Uh, rear yeah, shock. your rear linkage broke in Peru. Which yeah, I, I saw had, that. Uh, How did the linkage break? Um, we're actually going through... Um, Too many pies? <laughs> Too many pies, <laughs> yeah. Um, we were actually going through an area called Canyon del Pato, and the road is really rough. Duck Canyon in Peru. Yeah. And I noticed Lisa's bike was jumping around more than normal. And I thought, oh, I better pull Lisa, Lisa over once we get to the tarmac. After having this thought, a minute later, the, the whole of Lisa's bike, the back end collapsed. And she skidded to a halt, and I got off my bike and looked underneath, and I just thought, oh, man. And the linkage had broken, and I think what it was was Lisa's shock was leaking. So, and be, and, uh, and with the rough roads, um, it's the, a standard one, wasn't it? Yeah, this, the spring was completely uh, compressing, and and the energy from it completely compressing was didn't have anywhere to go, and it just snapped the linkage. So, cut a long story short, we actually got a police escort to a welding shop to get it uh, fixed up. Thank you to an Argentinian biker on his um, Honda Tornado. And there was, he was two up with his girlfriend. And thanks to him, he really helped us out, didn't he? And he spoke the language, so you know, completely um, interacted for us and uh, mediated on our behalf to get what we needed done. Um, yeah, we, a guy called Damien, really yeah. nice guy. We, um, we, took all the, we took the linkage off. Um, this was uh, a dusty town high up in the mountains. We took the linkage off. And we took the good link off the other side. We went into a, a town called Chimboti, and there was a there was a, um, there was like a police checkpoint 
and I remember this stern-looking guy who looked like chief, of, like a, the chief of police, pointing it to his subordinates, pulling people over, and I don't know what they were checking for, but you know we got pulled over as well, and he didn't look very happy, and he pointed at me and he said, "You follow me," and I was thinking, "Oh, blimey, you know what, what have I done? What have I done?" and um, we followed him through rush hour traffic and he had the blue lights on and the traffic was parting. <laughs> like, was, Moses. Yeah, it's like, it's like Moses. Like Moses <laughs> in the Red Sea. We were loading it up to the welding and, shop, weren't we? Yeah, and he drove us straight to the welding shop and the guys in the welding shop dropped everything because this guy was apparently chief of police and they fixed our our linkage within half an hour and we stood outside with photo, you know, having photographs with the guys in the welding shop and and the chief of police even said, you know, do you need a place to stay? Because my brother has a place and he sorted us out with a place to stay. So It was a love hotel, actually. In the end. You <laughs> just can't a, go wrong with those ones. It was a what? A love hotel. A love hotel. Now, explain what that is. Oh, you've opened a can of worms now. So it's, a, so it's basically a, it's, it's a hotel. It's accommodation for new couples to go and consummate their relationship, um, either before or after they've made it official with their parents, um, <laughs> as well as for, um, I, I guess, for the more pers- promiscuous amongst people to uh, go and um, have a bit of fun. Um, essentially, you walk into a room and, and uh, as soon as the lady gets over the shock that you want to rent it all night, not just by the hour, you, you, get, a, you get a whole room worth of, um, we're talking plastic sheets, unapologetically large mirrors, a bit of saucy wall art, I mean, it's, and they're very cheap and they're always fantastic for securing your motorcycle. They always have great security in terms of parking. So we love them. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> So what about Lisa's bike then? You didn't give me the full list of what you had to replace on that, or at least a, you know, a sort of a rundown. Um, How long have you got we, to? We had, um, Let's go on the light list. Right, okay. So uh, water pump uh, twice on Lisa's, Lisa's bike. Um, Collapse wheel bearings? Yes, the rear wheel bearings collapsed on the way to the border of Nicaragua um, after spending two weeks in Costa Rica in San Jose waiting for a shock for my bike. We actually said... Goodbye to the guys at Touratech. Thank you very much. Those guys, they were really good. Yeah, Marcus. They were super. Um, we said goodbye to them, and within four hours, the Lisa's bike was on a truck heading back to Touratech with a collapsed wheel bearing. We actually nearly lost the whole wheel because the bearing that it sits in, into the hub, um, it almost destroyed the hub as well. So That was a bit hairy when that happened because I was doing maybe 60, 70 miles an hour on the highway thinking everything was fine, but I did notice the clattering um, and I made Jason Tess ride the bike, after which he took took the whole thing a bit more seriously. He thought, he thought it was me on uneven road, just, you know, doing my usual, this something doesn't feel right here. <laughs> yeah, so, so there was that... Um, uh, radiator, Lisa's radiator uh, leaks, so we had to get that welded up in Peru. Um, uh, Lisa's um, radiator fan failed, so we were in Nicaragua, I think it was, yeah, and I had to use the fan out of a computer. <laughs> so it was quite a large fan, it was maybe six inches across, and... Um, I might as well have been blowing at the bike. No, it did work. It, it worked. It worked until you came into towns, and it got, and we weren't actually travelling too fast. And then the then it, the bike would start overheating. But it managed with that fan. We managed to get into another town that uh, had a 
uh, it's a scrapyard and we we got a fan from another bike. I think it was up a Kawasaki or something. It was a Kawasaki, mm. yeah. But that fan worked really well. Obviously, it wouldn't have worked if it rained. Um, <laughs> but, um, but on the plus side, anyway, yeah. my, my bike's had a solid engine. You, I cannot fault the engine on my bike. And I'm only on my second front tyre in 50,000 miles. Second front tyre, that's it? Yeah, the first one, I, the first tyre, I love telling everybody this story. The first tyre, I managed 31,000 miles and I could have got another grand out of it easily. And, and then, yeah, now I'm just on my second one now. What tyres are you running? It's a Heidenau K60. Mm. The round black ones? <laughs> the round black the ones. The round black ones. Yeah, 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 I have those as well. But oh, mine, are, yeah. mine are K60s. So would you take these bikes again if you were to go on a trip? Like would, if you could go sort of back in time, would you take the same bikes? No. Um. I would. I wouldn't. I would go smaller, lighter, and. Um, but that that's for different reasons. I think we're talking about mechanically. Yeah, but that's interesting too. Is yeah. a smaller, lighter. Mechanic, yeah, I think uh, I would. I would go more for a something like a DR six fifty, where I'm not. I'm not compromising on engine power, so I can still comfortably ride at seventy, eighty miles an hour. But then I can throw the throw the bike around a bit more on the gravel and in the sand because my bike in the sand and. Through, through the calcium chloride when it's wet, it's a heavy bike for its class. Because you're, you're it. riding the F1, it's the twin cylinder, basically the same as the F800. No, it's not actually, it's a single. It's the, it's F- the older one. That's why I said G, because I, I thought you were in the single cylinder. So you think there's going to be that much of a weight difference between that one and the DR650? There is. How much? I think it's about 100 pounds difference. No, 100 pounds, wow. Yeah. yeah. I don't weigh much more than that, Jim, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be. But what about reliability for the bikes? Because that's obviously where I was leading to was it seems like the reliability has been a real problem for you. I mean, that's that's a lot of parts, just what you've told me even so far. And I know that's not the full list in that miles. Do you know, with all with all the problems we've had, I still love that bike. Yours. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love my bike. I still love Pearl. <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, I don't think there's one bike that's, I don't know. For me, all manufacturers, you know, all bikes have moving parts and they all wear out. So would I go with one over the other? I don't know. Japanese, maybe maybe more reliable? I don't know. Um, but you love your 800. You really do, don't you? It is quite tall. I, 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 have to, I have to wake up in the morning and want to ride the bike. I want to be excited about getting on the bike and riding it and... If I go for a smaller bike with maybe simpler engine and, you know, simpler parts, I don't know if I'd feel inspired to get on that bike. So I think for me it has to be a, it has to be a combination of reasonable reliability and I want to be excited when I get on, on the bike. So I chose the 800 knowing that maybe it was it had a bit more technology than I would normally be happy with um because if if some of these parts go wrong then am i going to be able to get these parts in the middle of nowhere and a, a bush mechanic is probably not going to be able to fix some of the problems that could arise with my bike but i think we got bitten on the bum a few times in argentina paying you know over the odds for various parts didn't we mm. to fix keep the bikes on the roads and and i think as well there's been an element i mean little and less about fixing bikes and the mechanics around it all but i think we have been a little bit unlucky we've had probably more than our fair share of breakdowns repairs and yeah but then we've we've ridden the bike 
we've ridden the bikes hard off road, and um, you know things wear out. So um, we're not tra- we're not travelling with the uh, least amount of gear possible. Are we? No, I think we're travelling. No, we've, we've fairly loaded up. I've been quite obsessed with the amount of weight that we carry in and, and where we can shave weight. But I think we've got to the point now where we can't really shave any more weight off unless I, I'm carrying a lot of camera equipment. And, yeah, if I wasn't carrying that, then I probably would be able to shave a bit a bit more weight. But as far as other stuff like camping gear and part, boots. Part, parts for the bike and that kind of thing, um, I, d- I can't see where I can shave any more weight, really. So, Me neither. Mm. What tips would you have as far as motorcycles go for people? Uh, how, do you, how do you mean? Well, what things have you learned? You know, you go through this many repairs, you, you probably learn some things and think, okay, well, I won't do that again, or, uh, you know, I won't approach it that way. And, and not just maybe singular things, you know, as far as dealing with somebody, but I mean, overall, you know, maybe the way you equipped your bike, or maybe a part you decided to use, and you, or a product you decided to use that maybe, you know, you, you wouldn't do it the same? Uh, well, I... Um we originally had hard panniers, and now we've got soft panniers. You do? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you're in North America now, so there's probably less worry, and especially with staying at people's places mainly, less worry about uh, your bikes as far as locking stuff up. What about when it comes time to worry about security? Um, well, we generally, well, we've never left our bikes out on the street, and they've always been locked up inside of a compound. Or inside a hotel, or behind a fence that belongs to the property that we're, you know, we're staying at. at. So, and then if we don't leave anything of value on the bike anyway, so overnight, yeah, yeah. Plus, there are um, those steel cable locks for, yeah. for the bags, and and the bags that we've got have got an inner dry bag that you can just pull out and leave the panniers actually on the bike. So. We, we'd take those out and put them in the hotel anyway. So we wouldn't leave anything that I couldn't afford to lose on the bike. And I think as well I read that the uh, material of the outer saddlebags we've got is made from like a Kevlar slash proof um, fabric, isn't it, as well? The bullet, bulletproof. Vests. Yeah, the, the panniers we've got. Is this the Walter Cole batch one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 I've never... I've never tried it, but apparently they're slash proof. They're made of the same kind of material bulletproof vests are made out of. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they're called the Magadan MK2s. Right, that's it, yeah. Also, adventure spec, yeah. Um, I like them a lot. They fold down at the top, and they've got a big Velcro um, uh, strap. Well, say... Two, uh, two big buckles, like on a satchel. And... Um, they roll down, and inside the dry bag, um, it also has this Velcro closure as well that rolls down. So if you can imagine a cable uh, running uh, vertically around the pannier, um, if you try to maybe grab a corner and try to undo it, yeah, you could get your hand in, but then you've got to try and do the same to a, a dry bag that's also rolled up to get your hand in there. So... It wouldn't stop a determined thief, but it would stop an opportunist. I would have thought. So, I, I don't have. I wouldn't have any problem with nipping into a store and buying something and leaving my stuff on the bike, because I think it would take it would take a determined thief to get in them. So there, there's an element of security with those bags which I like, but 
I certainly wouldn't be leaving laptops and cameras inside those panniers if I was if I had to leave it out overnight. So and and when we're doing it pim for a coffee, then yeah, everything everything really of value is in the tank bag, isn't it? On on your person. So we just grab the tank bag and yeah, park the, the bikes where you can sometime more or less see them. Yeah, we try we try to park the bikes where we can see them. So. Uh, and, and in two and a half years, we've never had a problem. Mm, touch wood. Mm. Interesting, because Walter told me about those bags, and I hadn't spoken to anyone yet who's tried them, who's actually run them on their bikes. So, so that's really interesting. I was very curious about the security aspects of it. But what made you do the switch to begin with? Why like, you started out with the hard panniers? You paid your money for them. You had them on your bikes. Why the switch? Two reasons, really. Even though the metal boxes we had were uh, metal mule, and they were really good boxes. Um, I was very impressed with them. I wanted to try and shave a little bit of weight by just getting rid of the solid boxes and going for something soft. And also I found, which I suppose was was more more important to me, was the stuff inside the boxes just rattles around, so it, it slowly disintegrates. It, it destroys itself. All the dry bags that we had inside those boxes, even if we packed the the boxes carefully they would things would jump around inside the boxes on rough roads and all my dry bags would have holes in where they'd rub through and I would find powdered aluminium or aluminium in the bottom of the boxes <laughs> where they rubbed the sides stuff has rubbed the side of the box and you know it's starting to take the finish off the inside of the boxes and um so that was that was the main thing for me was just to stop things moving around, and in soft bags they, they don't move around because you know it takes on the shape of whatever's in it. So everything is held together nice and tightly. The inside of the boxes you had the, the aluminum panniers or aluminium, um, it wasn't coated with anything. Uh, from memory, I think they spray the inside, but I wasn't so concerned about. The finish inside the box is just more the fact that my stuff was starting to be destroyed by just the action of stuff just jumping around. Because the the vibration is is transferred right through to all your gear. And then, of course, the the, the oxidization that comes off the aluminum gets everywhere and it's impossible to get out. Yeah, yeah. So for me, that was one of the disadvantages of the boxes. And we were, once Lisa started to get better with riding off-road, we'd try and go and do more adventurous stuff which means that um we might do trails that were quite narrow and we didn't want to be bikes with hard metal boxes that might catch on on a rock or something and catch uh, onto your leg yeah so mm. um so for us the the soft panniers were the Makes way sense, didn't yeah were the next step for us but um, with going soft, I did have to completely reorganise how I packed. So from, you know, just basically throwing everything in and getting away with that, with the hard boxes, I had to then think, well, I can't do that anymore with soft because you'd be forever rummaging right to the bottom. It'd be a needle in a haystack scenario for every time you wanted just to find your tea bags at the end of the day. So those mesh um, zipped uh, garment bags and, you know, uh, Oh, yeah, decent tra- um, travel light bags. They're um, they're, they're the way forward, really, to revolutionise packing, um, making life easy for yourself. Packing and, yeah. and storing that, storing my laptop, for example, in the roll bag as opposed to 
yeah, what, what? In, in the side so for, for when every time my bike does I, do, I do dump it on its side I don't have to worry that I'm going to smash up the camera and my laptop they'll be either in my tank bag or the roll bag on the back the roll bag is your top bag right yeah yeah. yeah. And what I did with, with my laptop because that's always an issue with having soft bags is if you've got something delicate in there well, you know how you, how are you going to protect it if the bike goes over sure so with my laptop what I did was I have a, a it's like a zip um, clothes bag and it's mesh on one side and, and it's rectangular in shape so what I did was I slid the laptop between the clothes and then this clothes bag was would fit inside the pannier it was as wide as the pannier so it would then sit nice nice and secure inside the middle of the pannier between the clothes and the bikes have gone over several well quite a few times um, on that on that side, mm. and I've never had an issue. You know, the the um, laptop's been perfectly protected. So just closed. Wow, that's really good. What kind of laptop is it? It's a little um, eleven inch uh, MacBook Air. Oh, so it's fairly delicate then. That's an aluminum case, yeah. right? So that could easily uh, it's dent. Like and... Solid state, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's it's delicate, but um, yeah, I've had the whole weight of the bike on on that pannier, and in fact, I've I've slid down. Uh, on that pannier at speed, and um, I've never had a an issue with the with the stuff inside. Any other tips for any other gear? Um, Anything else you started out with? That you decided to change because that's a huge change. The boxes for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, the the boxes. I don't know. There's, there's pros and cons to, to the metal boxes. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Like we're not here to like. I'm, I don't want to corner you into saying that the the soft bags are better because we know that's not true. Just that's no. an interesting change that you found that worked for you. Yeah, and if you go down the road, you haven't got to beat a dint out of a bag. But at the same time, you know, if if the bags aren't made of really tough stuff, then you could rip your bag. So I've thought of something that I really like doing, and that is to um, grab my a helmet cover that my helmet came with and then using just my down jacket stuffing it inside that's my pillow oh very nice that's a good tip i mean i don't actually take my helmet cover though i think that's very good of you to actually hold on to your helmet cover to take with you when you're when you're traveling somewhere but that's an excellent yeah, they're, idea they're a nice round shape usually yeah they're, they're easy the to stuff somewhere yeah. they are yeah. yeah and then you can use it either as your dirty washing bag as well i think it should have a double duty shouldn't it mm-hmm yeah. And plus those organizers, um, those those mesh garment bags and um, like padded little um, pencil case type boxes, all that kind of thing for your electronics and I guess dry bags. Oh, Ziplocs. Oh, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> They've revolutionized my time. You know, it was just my experience, just keeping life happy to avoid coffee explosions and toothpaste eruptions and, and all of those things. So you'll never find me without at least a packet of Ziploc bags on my person. Yeah. <laughs> But the um, the going back to what Lisa said about the uh, helmet bag, um, I'm a side sleeper, so I need I need a decent pillow. And if I if I don't get a good night's sleep, then I'm I'm useless in the morning. And uh, and we tried everything from material pillowcases that were made for camping, and we'd stuff clothes in those, but they didn't seem to be high enough. Uh, we've tried um, inflatable pillows. Uh, and they were too hard because I needed more air to make them bigger, and then that made them harder, so they were uncomfortable. And the helmet bag thing is um, we found to be the, the best, well, the best mm. pillow, really. 
So I, I swear by it now. It's really comfortable on you. And if you've got a decent-sized damp jacket or even just some soft clothes that you can just chuck in there, you can make the pillow as big or as small as you want. And it doesn't cost you anything because if you've got a helmet, then, you know, it usually comes with a bag anyway. So, Any other gear? Um, oh, yeah, tie levers. <laughs> I've got a Are thing. Are you blazing over yet? Yeah. Than I am. <laughs> I've got I've got a thing about tie levers. There's a, Motion Pro make this tie lever that's got like a little lip on the very end, and it and it's at ninety degrees, and it just makes putting tires on rims so much easier. Um, you don't need to dig your tire lever into the well into the tire to try and lever it over because this little lip just hooks onto the rim of the wheel, so you're not pushing too much of the uh, lever into the tyre and if you've got tube tyres there's always a possibility you could uh, you know you could nip the uh, inner tube when you're putting it on so I particularly like those Um, stoves I like my stove Uh, my for for about a year we made a stove out of a beer can which we loved is this the alcohol one that that people make Yeah. yeah we loved and we kept we we used it until it literally fell apart. Um, mm-hmm. And in South America, you can buy ninety seven percent alcohol everywhere. In any pharmacy or supermarket. Yeah, and that didn't cost anything to make. For those people who are interested in making one, you just have to put alcohol stove in Google, and there's a, a nice little video there on on how to make one. And um, yeah, it's great. And it, of course, if it breaks, you just make another one. Or if if you lose it, you just have another beer. Just yeah. have another beer, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But you're uh, not using that now, though. Um, we're not using that now because we found alcohol of that um, purity? purity to be harder to find in North America for some reason. Um, but also, you have the problem of carrying alcohol with you instead of gas. Does, does that not bother you? Um. Not really. I mean, from a safety point of view, it's it's no less safe than yeah. carrying carrying petrol, but um, or gasoline. Sorry. Um, well, I guess the only thing that's not safe about alcohol is that you can't see it when it burns. Really, it can it can burn sort of invisibly. But but otherwise, I'm thinking more of just the fact that you're carrying a separate liquid that you have to source and carry, rather than just using the gas that you have for your bike. Yeah, but you know, it's burning gasoline. It's not ideal. What, because, put it on a cooking stove? Yeah, it's, for me it's not ideal because the impurities in the gasoline that could potentially go into the food that you're cooking. So I like to cook with alcohol because it's a, it's a pure fuel and there's... Um, you talk like you like to cook. I do like to cook a little bit. Well, I like to, I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd sooner cook with alcohol if, if given the choice. But the convenience of gasoline as well, um, you can pull up a petrol st- a gas station and, you know, get, get fuel. It, that, there's definitely a convenience to that. So Yeah, it makes sense. But, I mean, even if you're burning it in a, like an MSR stove or something like that, the other problem you have to deal with is the sooting up. You do have to clean it. It's not like a, an alcohol stove or something using proper fuel in where you don't have to do any maintenance to it. You're, you're always sort of cleaning it out because it's carboning up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it sooty. Very sooty. Very black, yes. So, yeah, that's, that's the other downside to 
um, burning gasoline is it, it gets a bit sooty. But if you um, increase the octane of your gas, isn't that supposed to um, compensate and make it keep it cleaner for longer? Um, I don't know. I don't know whether using the premium fuel. using premium fuel. I, somebody told me using premium yeah, fuel tip. fuel is less less sooty. Yeah, I don't think that's right. Uh, I, I, I think I they know. all have additives in it, and it's um, the premium is just um, the higher octane, just a little more difficult to burn. But I think you're still going to end up with the same soot. I've yeah. heard this conversation yeah. come up before. Yes. Really? Yeah. So, so we're learning something as well now. So, well, maybe we both have, we go research it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's a, it's the same soot with premium. It's it's one of those things. People often put premium in regular vehicles, thinking that they're doing something good for the vehicle. They're not. It doesn't do anything except cost you more money. Right, okay. Okay. Every day's a school day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about tips for travel? I mean, you guys have been spending, you've spent a long time on the road now. You've probably learned some some great things. Just tips to maybe avoid, uh, so someone else can avoid a pitfall. Wet wipes. Mm. Wet wipes. They'll actually get you quite far. Okay. And I'm blessed with having no sense of smell. <laughs> Hang on a second. Did you just say you're blessed with having no sense of smell? I did. You have no sense of smell? No, I don't. No wonder Jason does a cooking. (laughs) No wonder I'm still with Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Traveling with a boy. Am I supposed to leave that in? Every night. Of course. (laughs) We we can eat as much curry as we want, Jason, can't we? And still go camping together. (laughs) But you came to this because you were talking about wet wipes. Yes. Um, okay, any tips? Sorry. Um, Don't worry about your hygiene. Not important. <laughs> I think every woman deserves to carry a luxury item or two. So mm. I have been known partly through the trip to carry some cowgirl boots and some very small hair straighteners. <laughs> but, you know, in my defence, Jason's carrying a drone, so he really hasn't got a leg to stand on there in terms of arguing that I'm carrying too much unnecessary rubbish. Well, wait a second here, because I know that, and I wanted to get to this about, this is how you're surviving, I guess, a little bit on the road. At least I'm assuming you are, because I know you're doing photography and you're writing stories and things like that. Couldn't the drone be considered a tool for work? Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Jim. (laughs) You're absolutely right there. It's it's an essential part of the trip. Yes. Never never make Jason choose me or the drone. (laughs) Never go there. So I'm curious, Jason, what are you carrying for shoes? Um, I'm, I'm carrying. What are you wearing right now? I'm carrying, I'm carrying a pair of flip flops and a pair of sneakers, and that's it. I'm not carrying my cowgirl boots anymore. Jason made me ship them. Oh, that's terrible. That's so mean. Well, summer's over in the north anyway. And, and if you guys don't get out of there soon, you're going to be experiencing the winter with Neville Stowe in, in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be quite happy here. Yeah. I'd be quite happy as well, a medium term lodger. Yeah. Well, I did carry a set of antlers all the way from the top of the Dempster. That I found by the side of the road. So um, I found this beautiful pair of caribou antlers. And Which had been shed naturally. They hadn't been blown off, had they? No. They were just no. naturally so, occurring. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I was carrying something that wasn't essential. We still are carrying. In fact, you weren't carrying them. I was carrying them. <laughs> you mean <laughs> you're pa- still carrying the antlers? Yeah. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to ship them now. We're down in. If we can. Down in Canmore. I know, right. I, I'm, I'm, we're both tired of carrying these. What did you say I you mean, wanted they, to do with them? They're, they're huge antlers. They're almost five foot in length. They're so. beautiful, though. But oh, what did you say you wanted to make with them? I was going to make a light. But anyway. But we, we don't own a house. <laughs> anyway. Okay. 
<laughs> Some things you just can't be practical about in life. No, you can't. You can't. It's, it's my little. It's my little um, souvenir to myself. I, I want to talk more about making money on the road here, but Lisa, let's look at your experience here because you know I alluded to it earlier. You'd started out as a new rider when we first spoke. You'd sort of got over that hump, I think, but everything was still brand new. What's changed for you? First of all, I probably hadn't gotten over it when I said I had. <laughs> I probably exaggerated uh, quite a bit there. Um, what's changed? Just the ac- active riding has changed. So the the sheer fact that I've I've now got fifty thousand miles under my belt on the trip. I had five thousand um, going to work and back miles in England. I guess the exposure, isn't it, of all different kinds of roads, conditions, environments through all different textures of. Um, Mud, sand, gravel, loose gravel, up mountains, up volcanoes, down again. I've had to. I've just had to learn. <laughs> I've had to suck it up. But now it all feels normal to you. You get on the bike and you don't. You know, there's not that nervousness there that there was at first for like that we all have when we start to ride. That's all gone now, and everything's no, really. normal. No, no. Sometimes I have my off days where I, um, I go two step two steps backwards before I can go forwards again. And it always takes me a good half an hour to warm up where, you know, Jason's Jason's actually quite shocked that I'm still, you know, I, st- I still find myself being reticent over a few. Over, I hadn't experienced the calcium chloride, for example, when we went up the Dalton. Um, and actually, it wasn't the Dalton Highway where we were on wet calcium chloride. It was uh, from Fairbanks to Manly Hot Springs. And there was 80 miles of really, really wet calcium chloride the whole time. Yeah, and I had to uh, just get on with it, really. I think just get on with it. It's very slippery. Yeah, if if anyone hasn't slipped or anyone hasn't ridden, yeah, same thing, in calcium chloride before, it's just like this thick layer of goo. And it actually seems to stop at like three quarters of an inch, doesn't it? Where it creates this this slime layer that sticks like concrete and it's slippery as ever. It is very slippery, but it's not too thick. And it is is a challenge on a, a bigger bike. You know, or or a bike as heavy as mine that's loaded up. Um, it also eats through things as well. In fact, I destroyed a complete set of pads. Um, brake pads in four days. Um, yeah, is that from grinding off or from rotting it out, like corroding it? I think I think it's just that continuous. Uh, it's that fine, slurry kind of um, uh, substance, the calcium chloride, and it, and it basically acts like a like a, a paste and it just wears everything down really quickly and my pads were completely shot after four days well wow. how did you stop that from happening again uh take more pads oh, is that right oh. <laughs> take more pads yeah i i know that also people people have problems with with having radiators that block up as well because it, it sticks to everything and yeah. then bikes overheat and i've heard stories of people taking um Camelbacks or hydration packs, and using those to try and squirt the water out from between the fins on the on the radiator, or going down to a creek and getting some water in a bottle and and trying to wash it out that way. So it it really is nasty stuff. It's great when it's dry because it makes the road so hard and there's not much dust at all. But you know when it's wet, it's it's a it's a Jekyll and Hyde um, substance. Um, mm, it is, it is yeah. glorious on dry roads, like riding over silk. Isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's like pavement when it's um, when it's when it's dry. But yeah, but yeah anything else, back, Lisa? Yeah, no, I was 
um, just gonna just gonna finish off really with saying that you know I, st- I just I still do have times where I think you know I, f- I forgot my muscle memory or I've forgotten consciously how to just um, you know quietly get on with it and so- sometimes if I'm feeling particularly confident I will ride really well and other days when I'm not feeling confident I won't and I'll I'll almost regress and I still do that now and uh, I-, I just think it's because I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm not a very natural rider. Um, although I love riding, I'm not not really into motorcycles at all. I I just love motorcycling. Um, that's where Jason comes in, my handy little mechanic. But yeah, I think um, I think go easy on yourself if you if you have done a lot of riding and on road is a completely different experience, isn't it, to riding off road? And it's it's never the highways that are catching me out. It's it's always you know off road now and again you know i can cope with most kind of gravel now and i can cope with a bit of rocky terrain i can actually cope with a bit of sand but there's still times where i think oh shucks what am i doing again <laughs> how do i get my bike to do this hmm. to get to get you know to a point where i can not think about it anymore and it'd be more second nature uh but it does help us being definitely helps being um you know in communication with one another jason has been a, a pretty good mentor for me Sure. But I think a lot of people go through that. I think most of us have that where you have a, a day where you're not really in the zone. And it, I mean, you still ride fine, but it just doesn't feel like as smooth. Everything's not clicking right, like, yeah. like those other times when you ride, it just feels so smooth and you're connected with the bike. There's just some sort of, you know, I don't know whether it's a delayed communication or some sort of slow <laughs> communication or not quite the fit between you and the bike that you normally have. That, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, early on as well in the trip, oftentimes I would be riding dangerously slow so that it would be um it would get to the point where daylight was um, starting to fade and dusk was on the horizon and I was making life difficult for myself because I wasn't trusting that actually momentum is is actually your friend um and, and a couple of serious pep talks from Jace um which I you know I didn't like to hear or want to hear at the time actually did me the world of good and actually put me in a in a in a bit of a fiery mood the following morning and then I'd, I'd actually ride like I'd never ridden before <laughs> and Jason's like why can't you ride like this all the time I have no idea why I can't but um if, if you get me in a foul mood I'll, I'll ride pretty quick for you <laughs> you mentioned being in communication is it were you leading that you're using communicators you're actually talking back and forth yeah yeah we've got a uh, intercom system into the helmets which uh, has been has been really useful particularly in the beginning, because then I could warn Lisa of road conditions. So if we were doing dirt roads and, and the surface was changing a lot from you know ruts to gravel to mud, I could warn Lisa in advance so she could prepare for it. Or I would say, you need to, you need to go through this, this soft section pretty fast. And uh, Jason oftentimes just uh, screams at me, so if he does this at me enough times i will actually follow suit and and give it a good (laughs) what does that mean it It means opening the throttle up so i know what that means but i mean what are you trying to signal or so what i'm trying to say is you know you need positive pressure on the throttle like really go for it now lisa if we're going through soft stuff then i you know not not to roll off the throttle but to actually you know Give some positive pressure uh, on the throttle to lift that front wheel up a little bit. It just makes life easier through the soft stuff. You know, brap. No, that's a, and that is a very good uh, representation of the F800 sound too. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> I think Lisa's been working on it. Yeah, oh, but, 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 but Pearl has to do that just as cap- you know, just as yeah, just, does, a, it, just it a capable have, way. Yeah. It doesn't actually work if if Lisa j- just makes the noise. She has to actually turn the throttle as well, just to point that out. <laughs> on, on a more serious note, Jim, there is something I'd really want to add right now, and that is um, I started the bike, started started the journey on um, on a factory lowered version of my bike, and very early on, I, I just kept getting stuck. I was struggling over rocks. They were scraping on the underside of the sump guard. And uh, it got to the point where it was a bit ridiculous. So, you know, Jason had had enough of me snotting and screaming and struggling over rocks. So he he took the executive decision of raising the bike up back to a standard high. And in all honesty, I, I wished I'd have, um, you know, ridden a um, a standard height bike from day one. I, I really didn't... Uh, it really didn't benefit me too much by riding a really low bike other than I had the confidence in my head when I was a brand new rider that I was flat footed on the bike. And, and I guess in some ways I did drop it less than Jace in him being, you know, on a very tall bike with uh, a height of only five foot eight and a peanut. I, um, I was on a factory lowered bike, so I was very stable on mine, but of course I had all these problems over rocks, but I would, um, I would advise any lady considering, should I go for a lowered version or a standard height? I totally go for it. Just go standard height. <laughs> I've struggled over many a rock. Was it the lower links that broke? When we in Peru, yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was the, it was the on Lisa's bike. It has this kidney-shaped linkage system. There's like a piece that looks like a kidney, uh, and then there's two straps um, that come down to the bottom of the um, the shock absorber. Whereas on mine, it's just straight onto the swing arm, so it's a very simple system. But actually, Jim, when Jason took the um, rear shock off, he also had to take the what do you call it? The the the, thing, the front things off as well. Just the, the forks, the springs. The forks. Oh, I took the forks off to put progressive springs in the front took, of your took, bike. That's it. He he took the forks off to put the progressive springs on, and so he took the lowered shock out to put a standard height shock in. And he said, "Look at this, Lise. Uh, your forks are standard length, and your rear shock the whole time has been a, a factory lowered shock." And I, and I kind of looked at him blankly, talking Russian at me. And he said, you've been riding a chopper the whole time. The front of your bike's been actually higher than the back of your bike, which is probably why I got 31,000 miles out of my front tire. <laughs> I've been riding a chopper the whole time. They didn't slide <laughs> the, the fork tube up? No, they, re- they reduced the shock in the... Because uh, we... Bought it, I bought it unseen on we, eBay because I like the colour. We bought it because it was described as lowered, factory lowered. So, and she was beautiful. So they, they lowered... Well, whether it came out of the factory like this and somebody put standard springs in the front, I don't know. But the back, the rear, the rear shock was was a lowered shock, but standard height springs in the front. So, because I, I said to Lisa, this ha- this bike handles like a pea in corners, and I couldn't work out why, and yeah. and that makes sense now because. The, the geometry was out. Yeah, well, the geometry was out. So the rake of the, the forks was had increased because the back was lower. So no wonder it didn't handle very well. So she'd been riding like this for two years with this, with this um, configuration. So. so maybe I'm better than I think I am. <laughs> Well, maybe it was a good learning curve, I was thinking, because you were saying about you would recommend that other people just go with the, the raised version. Maybe starting out on that lowered version was a, a good way to do it. I mean, it, it depends, of course, on your height. Everything to do with your height, your confidence, the whole yeah, bit. Just, for sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I, I was the least least natural and the least confident rider to begin with. So being on a, at least a bike that I could 
have that stability with. It, it did. It was good in the beginning. It was. Well, what about making money on the road? You guys started out, you um, liquidated everything you had, you started out spending your money. Now you're doing things, you're doing photography and writing and making an absolute fortune at it. And <laughs> We're not. <laughs> <laughs> that was just my little thing I threw yeah. in. So let's I talk about that. You, you sort of, you've developed this. How did this come about? We, we decided that um, we would approach a couple of magazines about writing articles and we we make it's pocket money really lisa writes articles for biking magazines and i provide the pictures and just recently i've now started to provide pictures just in their own right so i get a little bit of cash for for my images now and again it's certainly, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a living, but it, it certainly helps towards running costs. Yeah, it's, it's quite sporadic, isn't it? It's, it's definitely not consistent, and it's um, we do it for, for the love of it, really. I love writing, Jason loves taking pictures, so it's a good combination in that respect. So, so because of that, we can actually churn out quite a lot of stuff. So Lisa has written quite a few articles for several magazines. And on top of that, Jason now does look at selling his uh, drone footage to various production companies or touristic operators, tourist boards, things like that. Um, or, you know, you can use your drone. We can we can uh, put together, Jason can put together quite quickly um, a promotional video for someone who might give us free digs for a week if they have a business and they, if they have never before been able to market their business from above. Um, sometimes that works really well, doesn't yeah, we it? Yeah, we did that when we were in Caviawi in uh, Argentina. We were staying in a hostel, and the the guy who ran the hostel also um, had an adventure company. So he, he sold tours um, mm-hmm. like uh, dog sledging and snowshoeing and um, uh, snowmobiling, that kind of thing. And I said, well, I can make you a little promo video if you want. Um and he said, "Great! If you can make me a little promo v- video, you can stay here for free." So, and we've done that for um, Argentina Moto Tours as well. Yeah, which was um, a really cool company that we hung out with for a bit in Argentina. <laughs> yeah, and other companies, you know. Yeah, so well watching. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to get rich on this, but um, <laughs> it certainly helps. It's humble beginnings, isn't it? Yeah. You never know. Yeah, what kind of doors it might open in the future. You, it's just good to keep. It's it's good to have a creative outlet isn't it in the evenings really good i think yeah the heyday of writing for magazines and making a living from it i think is is long gone isn't it yes it is so is it enough to you're saying it's not enough it's even everything you're doing it's not quite enough to cover your expenses you're still sort of going in the hole traveling well i I mean we we sold a house and we have a rental property which um we make a small income from so we have a small passive income from that rather than um completely sell everything that we got for this trip we decided that we would just rent uh, our property out not the house we sold uh, a cheaper property yeah. to a different completely different clientele yeah, we, we, we bought we sold the house we bought another property which we've never lived in and uh, we rent that out so that helps towards um you know it pays for the fuel Mm. That's much, an yeah. excellent tip, yeah, because I mean, now if, if you have a lot of equity in your house and you sell it, you could get something less expensive and turn it into a bit of an income while you're traveling. Excellent tip. 
Yeah, so that that that's helped us out, and um, you know, it's pretty much funded the trip for fuel, at the very least, mm-hmm. for the entire trip. So, so we didn't complete. We weren't completely. Um, we didn't completely sell everything to do this trip. So, we were selling the house anyway. So, um, it seemed like uh, it was a good investment doing it that way because we we'd make that small passive income while we're away so mm. so it, you know it's not our savings wouldn't go down as quick so mm-hmm. so yeah what happens next uh we're heading back down through to montana, montana idaho down towards yellowstone and hitting all the sites as we travel down to Arizona. All those ones that we couldn't see on the way up because of the, uh, the weather, yeah. the bad weather. We've got stuff to pick up in Arizona and then we're going to head over to the East Coast. So that's the plan. Will you head home after that? Um, yeah, we're going to head back to the UK, probably um, save a bit more cash and then we're looking at Africa next. And we need to sort carnets out as well. Do some um, research. So, yeah, maybe a few months in the UK before we head off again. So I'm curious now, will you take the same bikes that you have now? I think we're looking at maybe selling Lisa's bike at some point. Or keeping it and getting another one. Oh, you're going to keep it now? Okay. So we're looking at maybe a DR650 for Lisa. Anybody's in the market and has a really specced up DR650, let me know. (laughs) Could have a deal. I think it would be a nice bike. Yes, I, yeah. I had something a little bit lighter for Lisa. Um, now she's got the confidence to ride a, a taller bike. I think um, if well, we the DR six fifty is going to be taller again, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be taller again. And, and Lisa's tried tried a friend's DR, and she's quite them. yeah, she's quite happy with They're it. Quite so. springy, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I'm heavier than I look. They go down quite a lot, don't they? When you sit on them, the suspension does go down quite a lot. They're yeah. springy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what about you? I don't know. I, I I don't know whether to take the 800 or whether to maybe buy a DR650 myself. Um, it's always that compromise with if you go too light and too small, you're compromising comfort. And and because I like to carry a lot of tech, I want to take, carry my drone and my cameras. Um, Would you take your drone to Africa? Uh, possibly, yes. The drone yeah. is huge, though, isn't it? I mean, when it's you watch- a, it, uh, yeah, and it's a real pain in the butt to carry. Yeah, but you know what, Jim? You know when you see the footage? Oh, I know. It it's worth it's worth the hassle. It's amazing. Yeah. It's the stuff that, that that is coming out with drones is just absolutely amazing. But you're running too now into um, legalities for it. You know, they've they've enacted laws in Canada now. You have to be licensed and you have to have insurance for it. And you can't fly it, you know, within so many meters of. of people and populated areas and all kinds of things so it seems like it's getting more difficult to actually get one out and just use it it is it's, it's true you can't within five miles of an airport or you know yeah. you can't fly next to you know a public place like a park or have you had anyone uh, stop you and say hey you can't do that here mm, not yet it's reg- it's the the drone is registered um which i had to do even though i'm a foreigner mm-hmm. i still had to uh, register it in in the u.s um, but there's the rest of the world don't have any, you know, there's lots of countries that don't have any rules at all. I, Iceland, for example, you can fly anywhere. There's zero there. There's zero, there's no zero, legalities. Yeah, zero regulations. Now, is your um, drone the one that you put the GoPro on or, or some sort of other camera, even a bigger camera? 
No, it's 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 got a camera already built in. I see. Um, I did have the one that carried the the GoPro. That was the generation before, um, before the one I've got now. But this has got its own integral camera. So. What is it? What one? It's a uh, it's a Phantom. Uh, it's a Phantom Three by a company called DJI. It's a three professional. Isn't it? Yeah. And um, it's there's lots of drones on the market, but for me, it's the it's the one with the most functionality. So it's not the smallest, but it's, um, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. It's very stable can, and easy to fly. We can both ride and it can follow us. But if we climb 10 meters up a hill, so will it. It's kind of cool. It's very, it's very smart, isn't it? Mm. Sophisticated. Yeah, the technology is just, it's, um, it's, it's incredible. What, what we can do now as far as filming the trip that we couldn't do 10 years ago it's uh yeah technology's the way it's advancing how quick it's advancing so are you going to put your writing skills and your photography skills to a book uh well never say never never. lisa's definitely got all the material she needed to write a book then yeah she could definitely with the material she's already written i i would say she could definitely write a book jason lisa great to have you on again and good luck with your trip in africa Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you, Jim. It has. Take care. And of course, that was Lisa Morris and Jason Spafford, who are, well, they're going to end up traveling the world in their motorcycle. You can find out more about them and follow them. You could look them up on Facebook. You can go to their website, twowheelednomad.com. And of course, you can always drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and look at the show notes for this episode. Adventure Rider Radio is also supported by AeroStitch. You know, the other day I was adjusting my totally worn out chain so I could ride another few hours out of it. I'm really stretching it, so to speak. Excuse the pun. And to do it, I always use the toolkit that I have on my bike. And the toolkit on my bike is in, it's a sort of a roll inside a plastic tube. Now, the tools are always organized and kept dry in the tube. And I've been using it for a number of years now. I originally ordered the tube from AeroStitch long before I was doing this podcast. And the roll is sort of a, a converted camping utensil roll. It works fine. But if I were to remake my tool roll now, I would be looking at what AeroStitch offers for tool rolls. They carry an assortment of tool rolls, including one they make themselves. And some are complete with tools as well. If you haven't already got your AeroStitch catalog, the tools are in their catalog, drop by their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, you use the forward slash ARR because that lets them know you come from Adventure Rider Radio, but it's also going to get you 10% off your order or free shipping on your next order if you're an existing customer. Now, of course, you can always see their products online. You can always go to their website and they've got all their products there. But if you're thinking of tools, rebuilding your toolkit or adding something to it, definitely look at what AeroStitch has to offer. AeroStitch, 33 years of designing, making, and selling motorcycle gear for riders like you. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Do you know which company claims to have been building motorcycles continuously for the longest period of time? If you answered Royal Enfield, then yes, you're correct. The Enfield Company began in the 1800s as a munitions manufacturer in the UK, and by 1901, they produced the first Royal Enfield motorcycle. At some point, they began manufacturing in India, and then the UK side of the company closed up. But the Royal Enfield name, as well as its molds, its castings, and patterns, were kept alive in India. 
And over the past five years, Royal Enfield motorcycles, the sales for Royal Enfield have exploded in India, setting incredible sales records and gaining a reputation as a bit of an Indian success story for business. And now, today, Royal Enfield has made the corporate move to North America. Now, that's very exciting because it's another motorcycle company that's offering a a somewhat new, yet somewhat old, bike to the North American market. We managed to get both the president of Royal Enfield North America, Rod Copes, as well as the CEO of Royal Enfield himself from India, Siddhartha Lal. And together, the three of us talked bikes and where Royal Enfield is headed for North America. I'm Siddharth Lal and I'm the CEO of Royal Enfield, which is based out of India, but I'm living in London these days. And uh, I'm Rod Copes. I'm the president of Royal Enfield North America which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company. And I am out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Siddhartha and Rod, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thanks. Siddhartha, you were just mentioning you're living in London. I assume you mean London, England. That is right, yes. How how is it you are the CEO for Royal Enfield in India, but you're living in London, England? Well, you know, stranger things have happened. But... um, (laughs) Many things. We've we've reached a point at Royal Enfield now where after years of bringing Royal Enfield up to a particular level, which basically is an India growth story that we've had over the last five, six years, we're now in a position where we're ready to to go global in a way and and, and to to get into international markets. And and that's part of my move um, on the one hand, which is that London is really where the birthplace of Royal Enfield uh, was in any case. So over time, it's become an Indian company, as well as the fact that we're increasing our exposure or dependence of engineering in the UK. So over the last 18 months, we've got a 75-member team in United Kingdom, and that's all new for us, uh, who are taking the lead on a lot of our new projects. So there's a lot of work going on in the UK as well of new product development and product strategy and industrial design and other such areas. So that's what brings me to London. And Rod, I assume that you're in Milwaukee for a reason. Uh, yes. <laughs> I've been in the Milwaukee area for, I guess, about 25 years on and off. I've moved away several times, but I would call that home. And uh, I had spent about 20 years with Harley Davidson and left that company about four years ago. And so having deep roots in the area and three children in high school, um, it's a convenient place to to be headquartered for me right now. Well, let's just look at Royal Enfield, just get a a quick history of Royal Enfield, because some people may not be aware of just how deep the roots are. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, Royal Enfield is the oldest motorcycle company in continuous production. While the Enfield company is even older than that, the first motorcycle from Royal Enfield was made in 1901, and that's in Redditch in in the United Kingdom. So that's our origin. And of course, as in those days, there was hundreds of, well, let's say scores of motorcycle companies in, in Europe, in the United States. And Royal Enfield was certainly one of the big ones in the United Kingdom and and was extremely popular as a very reliable, sturdy, and even in those days, trials motorcycle, off-road motorcycle, as it were. As time went on in the UK, you know, with the advent of Japanese, uh, let's say, reliable, fuel-efficient, cheaper motorcycles, a lot of companies started going downhill in, in the UK, as they did in the US. And Royal Enfield really as a quirk of fate survived because... Royal Enfield had started 
assembling motorcycles in India. So while the UK company died, the Indian company kept going on. So that's really the historical part. And and eventually, our company, which is Aisha Motors, took over again a failing company, Royal Enfield, in the early 90s. That's that's because the same situation happened in India. What happened in the US and UK uh, and Europe uh, a few decades ago. The uh, you know very cheap, fuel efficient, and really good Japanese motorcycles came in and nearly obliterated the local motorcycle industry. So, um, so as Royal Enfield, we you know after years of trying to figure out how to address the shift in market, uh, we decided to to stick to something which was very different than what was available in the Indian market. Firstly, at that time, which is which was really simple, fun classical beautiful leisure motorcycles and that's the position we took that's that's where we put all of our energies and our effort and and over time over the last decade or two we've actually been able to build uh, a product a brand a distribution in that domain and now we're taking that strength that we have in india which is that we've actually grown 10x in the last five years. So from uh, Royal Enfield was selling around 50,000 units of motorcycles in 2010. Last year, we sold 500,000 units. This year, we're uh, on track to selling 675,000 units and growing well. So with that type of growth and scale that we have, it makes us probably the largest middleweight motorcycle maker already. But that's really often Indian base. And now we think we can take this idea of fun, pleasurable middleweight motorcycling to other parts of the world. That's incredible growth. And of course, it's the North American market that I'm interested in talking about today. To look at that, that's a huge growth over those five years. Now, is that marketing or the market itself, the desire for the motorcycle? Well, it's it's a lot of different things, obviously, which came together at the same time. It's it's a demographic trend. People were looking at something bigger and better in the Indian context, where the market was basically all 100cc motorcycles. It was certainly what we had done inside the company, which is uh, which is create a leisure style motorcycle, which was also good for your daily ride, which is very important. And in addition to that, it was actually um, a position as well, which was extremely far from. Uh, you can call it the Indo-Japanese commuter motorcycle. So anyone who wanted, um, who wants an adventure, leisure motorcycle in the Indian context, um, you know, the, the, the real option is a Royal Enfield. And, and so we were able to create a market space of middleweight motorcycles, which absolutely didn't exist in the country till then. And of course, we build, I think we make really nice motorcycles as well. And they, and they look very different and, and let's say uh, classic and that that has found an appeal over the years in India and then suddenly you know they come people can't have can't get enough of it now Rod Copes you're the president of North American Royal Enfield how long has Royal Enfield been selling in North America so great question um, my understanding of the history is again right about 1970 when uh, the uk company folded and the indian company continued was about the time they stopped sending motorcycles from the uk into the united states so they didn't sell any motorcycles until about in the united states till about 15 years ago when they connected with uh, an independent distributor in the united states who brought in the motorcycles, imported the motorcycles from India and established his own dealer network and grew the market and sustained 
a level of sales in the United States for the last 10 to 15 years. And until we came in most recently and actually took over from the independent distributor January 1st of this year. And so we're reestablishing a dealer network. We have created a wholly owned subsidiary company and we're building a team so that we can uh, kind of relaunch the Royal Enfield motorcycle and brand in North America. And again, we believe that there's a lot of growth potential within these markets. Where do you see the Royal Enfield fitting into the market? I mean, other than I think that they have a beautiful classic look, they're a great looking bike, but where do you think they fit into the market? Well, uh, the interesting thing about the North America region and specifically the Canadian and the U.S. motorcycle markets is that most of the manufacturers and uh, selling motorcycles in these markets have really gravitated to the really heavyweight, highly complex, highly expensive motorcycles, which has actually left quite a void in the in a middleweight space. So we believe uh, that the, the product lends itself nicely to really reestablishing the middleweight segment in the North America region. And we think the product with its combination of classic styling, affordability, and just simplistic and ease of use really goes back to what motorcycling was in the 60s and 70s. And we call that pure motorcycling. And uh, we believe the return to pure motorcycling is a, is a real thrust that we can leverage in the North America market. How many dealers do you have set up now in the U.S. and Canada? So we just started establishing our own dealer network effective January 1st, and we have roughly 30 dealers operational today. And, uh, and tomorrow we open up our maybe our 31st, which is our <laughs> Royal Enfield of Milwaukee uh, flagship dealership. Our plans over the next year or so is to get to roughly 100 dealers across both the United States and Canada, and we're really focused on the top 100 metro areas. Now, you're not setting up corporate dealerships. These are dealers that are already operating that are now going to carry the Royal Enfield line. So there'll be a mix of primarily multi-brand outlets, so you're correct. Existing motorcycle dealerships that already sell a number of different brands, and so we will join forces with them, and they will start selling the Royal Enfield brand. We also are, have identified a few individuals who will set up exclusive Royal Enfield motorcycle dealerships in some key urban environments and cities. And then in Milwaukee, this will actually be a, a company-owned dealership. And are all the bikes, they're, they're made in India, I assume, now, still, will they continue to be made in India and imported? Uh, yeah, we see no benefit of doing anything different. As Siddhartha mentioned, uh, we'll be producing 675,000 motorcycles in India, and the economies of scale and the strong supplier network that we have, leveraging cost, quality, and delivery, um, we believe it's the right strategic approach at this time. Siddhartha, how do you scale something like that? I mean, that's a huge growth over that period of time. What do you do for build quality? Have you been able to maintain the build quality? Yeah, that's a good point. What we've been able to accomplish in this, uh, like you said, we've grown at well over 50% every year for the last five or six years. But what that's enabled us to do is to be able to invest a lot more capital 
into the right area. So if you actually see our plant and our supplier base and what we've been able to accomplish there, we have um, in terms of process and, and, and in terms of equipment, we have everything which is absolutely global, state of the art, let's say no compromises. And we've been able to now bring all that in. So, so to give you an example, our paint shop is a door paint shop, which is the best in class German paint shop. All our machining centers are Japanese Makino machines. And the list goes absolutely on. But it's not only about the hardware. It's the fact that we've got all our tools and dyes, we get them from the best suppliers in the world. Now, we can afford to do that because we have economies of scale. So actually, the economies of scales have helped us in, in putting a lot more investment into our plant. Um, and as a result, the metrics, which we, we follow a very uh, Japanese-style approach on, on quality, which is for frequencies and, and monitoring all the different aspects, our our metrics on quality have improved dramatically, even though we've grown so much over the years. So it's been an enormous effort on our part to actually do all that. But at the end, the outcome is evident with you know with the type of sales that we're getting in, particularly in the Indian market. But that's starting to now grow in international markets as well. Can you describe the bike just overall mechanically? Uh, the motorcycle is is really old school, right? We we try and of course. We have upgraded the motorcycle in terms of whatever is required in a modern context. So fuel injection and, and disc brakes and electric start and, and, and you know stuff like that. But the idea of the motorcycle is still the feeling that you used to get in the old days, which is that, that qualitative aspect of the motorcycle, which is uh, great fun to ride at low engine speeds and uh, or low road speeds as well and, and all of that. So um, in terms of pure specification, it's, you know, typically the one that we sell in the US is, is a 500cc category motorcycle. It's around 180 kilos and uh, it's fuel injected, single cylinder, air cooled, two valve, quite old school in that way. Yet it's um, the parts are all extremely modern. Uh, it's compliant with all the uh, emission standards, including the most stringent ones in California. And it really does the job. So, but for me, it's a lot more about the character of the motorcycle because it's a very uh, let's say we have a very strong low-end torque, right? So when you actually get on the motorcycle, you, you wouldn't think that it's got so much energy right from the word go. And that's, and that's really what this motorcycle is about. Has there been talk, you know, when you're sitting there around, the designers are, are thinking about what's new, what can we make new for our end field? Has there been talk about modernizing the whole thing, about changing the entire look, going with, I don't know, a, maybe a V configuration or, or four cylinders or something like that? Or is it something that you really stick to, so this classic look? Predominantly, what you're going to see even in the next many years is you're going to see... Uh, classic or classic leaning motorcycle. So if you see our range of uh, Bullet, we have a motorcycle called the Classic, uh, the Continental GT, they're all period styling. And they're very simple in their nature, but of course the underpinning parts and technology are all relevant for the current context in order to meet consumer requirements and in order to meet regulation. So what you're going to see in the future is um, is firstly that Royal Enfield will stick to the middleweight segment. We have no ambition, certainly not in the next five to seven years, to get out of what we call middleweights is 
you know, in the order of 250 cc to 750 cc. We were restricting ourselves there because, as Rod said earlier, that we feel that there is an enormous potential globally to serve a market which has been truly underserved. So on the one hand, the very evocative and, let's say, interesting European and American brands and, and some aspects of the Japanese brands, you know, their super sport ones and all of that, they've all sort of gravitated towards big motorcycles and big and super expensive, super heavy motorcycles. And and on the other hand, in markets like India and China, uh, the motorcycles are typically 100, 150 cc and very economical motorcycles, which are more for commuting. As a result, globally, the middleweight segment, we believe, has been sort of left in the lurch nearly. And then that's where we come in. And, and we already have, as you've pointed out, scale in that segment. And we're able to use that scale to get really good technology to get really good fit and finish and touch and feel parts into a middleweight motorcycle, which you would expect only in a much larger motorcycle. So that's the general idea, but they will look you know, more classic than anything else in the future as well. That's interesting because we've talked many times on this show about how motorcycles, especially in the adventure motorcycle segment, they've gotten bigger and bigger. And now it seems like there's a lot of talk around of people looking for smaller bikes. They've bought the big bikes, they've went and ridden them, and they've found that they're just a little cumbersome. As a matter of fact, I've had people tell me they're leaving their big adventure bike at home when they're going on their big adventure and taking a smaller bike. Do you see that in the market? That's that's part of our uh, entire outlook as well. We think that trend for adventure bikes, but also for other motorcycles, is very much the case where um, where we uh, the way we look at it. We, we, I think we live in a world which is nearly post-performance. So you can't, you know, that extra horsepower on a hundred and fifty horsepower motorcycle is really not worth it anymore, right? So so like you said, people are looking to step back and and in fact. Um, you know, it's it's like the slow food culture in a way, and that's that's the type of culture we want to inculcate. It's not about riding quicker or getting to your destination quicker. It's it's really about enjoying the ride a lot more and and doing it with um, with a tool, which is a motorcycle in our case, which we talk about, which allows w- what we call as the equilibrium between man, machine, and terrain. When the motorcycle is overly powerful, there will never be an equilibrium between man, machine, and terrain. But when all three are pushed and all three come together, our view is that that comes more in a middleweight motorcycle. And we believe that the future is in middleweights. And then certainly for adventure motorcycles, that's the case. We've um, recently launched in India a motorcycle called the Himalayan. It's a 400cc category um, motorcycle. And, And the entire concept there is that uh, we want to go over the flow of the Himalayas as opposed to trying to conquer. So it's 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 trying to get the energy of of let's say the biggest mountain range in the world in that in that figurative sense, um, because you can't conquer something which is so big, but you can uh, you can certainly use its energy to to get you to uh, a different place, as it were, and and to be able to um, live in harmony and equilibrium. So that's the kind of ideas that we have when we create new motorcycles it's not dominant it's more harmony so i hope that helps i really like that that was really well said rod maybe you can run through what uh, models you have for north america right so what we offer in north america are three basic models the first is the bullet 500 so it's a 500 cc air-cooled single and that motorcycle 
model is actually the longest run production motorcycle model in the world. I believe it's over eight decades. It's been continuously running as a motorcycle model for Royal Enfield. So that motorcycle begins, uh, the price is $5,000 for that motorcycle. Uh, our next motorcycle model is the 500 Classic, which is a little more classically styled. Um, in the United States, it comes with a solo sprung seat. So it really it kind of fits the image of Royal Enfield and the, you know, the days of even before the 60s, more of the 50s kind of vintage look. And that motorcycle comes in a number of different finishes and colors, uh, but starts at $5,500. And then the third model is the Continental GT, which was just launched about two and a half, three years ago. It's essentially a, a model that would look like it comes right out of the 1960s in Europe. It's a cafe racer looking motorcycle. It has um, some really nice componentry on it. And even the engine itself has been bored out a little bit to be a 535cc. It's got a lighter flywheel, so it's a little more nimble and feels lighter and has an entirely new chassis as well. And that motorcycle retails for $6,000. We're not talking really expensive bikes here, which is great because I thought the price range was going to be much higher. Um, you know, as we approach the North America motorcycle market, we're really looking at, at being an inclusive brand. And, uh, you know, we really believe the product could fit with almost any target market or any demographic. There's been a lot of focus on the millennial generation. It's very, I mean, they're very experience-based. And again, we think our product fits squarely with what they would like and, and kind of being in a cool urban mode of transportation. But we can run it up and it could be a second motorcycle for someone who's already has a larger motorcycle. It could be someone who's getting older in age who wants a smaller motorcycle. Uh, could be a friend and family. It could be the first motorcycle. So you're right. I mean, it, it really is a broad reach within our market. And we're excited about that because uh, we think we can expand the whole pool of motorcyclists in our in our markets. And and let me add here, it's not just the price factor. It's also the, let's say, the, the running cost of the motorcycle, which is which is very attractive. But But it's also the fact that the motorcycle itself is how do how do I put it? Not very precious, right? It's not it's not, you know, one of those uh, very very highly strung, you know, I don't know, Japanese or no, or, or, or Italian super motorcycles, which, which you know, you, you don't you don't want to mess with it. You don't want to you don't want to dent it at all. You don't want to do anything. And our motorcycles, we want you to use it a lot more. And you know, if it falls, it gets a nice car. It doesn't look bad. And it, and and if you need to replace the part, you're not going to be you know way out of pocket. It's all. It's it's it just feels, or that we believe is that it just feels a lot lighter and easier to use, and that in, in not in a weight manner necessarily, but you know in your mind, and therefore you end up using it a lot more, which is what we want at the end of the day for our motorcycle. Siddhartha, you mentioned the Himalayan. That's the adventure bike version, isn't it? That's right. Okay, and you said that's in India right now. Will that come to North America? Well, we're doing some market studies, as it were. We've got a couple of them out here. We're testing the market. We were not too sure what people would think about it. So the best thing to do is to to write it here and to see what people think. And we've got some uh, really 
good uh, reviews and and feedback. Uh, we even got an outstanding article in Cycle World, which uh, took me also a little bit by surprise, but but I'm delighted about it. And and yeah, and yeah. So there's a, I think there's a bit of a groundswell. We, uh, you know, and and we're and we to take a final decision now on bringing that motorcycle in here. Well, very nice. I look forward to seeing more Royal Enfield, and I look forward to the time that I can actually walk in and ride one myself and get a feel for what the bike is really like. Rod, Siddhartha, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rod Copes, who is the president of Royal Enfield North America, and Siddhartha Lal, who is the CEO of Royal Enfield itself. You can find out more about Royal Enfield and see the bikes they're offering by tripping by their website, www.royalenfield.com forward slash USA. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Available at www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. It was certainly a long one today, and I'll tell you, when it gets long, that's a lot of editing. You'd have no idea. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who, as you know, keeps everything going, does all that work behind the scenes that, um, well, you don't know, but hopefully you're hearing it in the show and you're seeing it on our website. Which reminds me, don't forget, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Look at the show notes. There's a lot of stuff from every show that's collected by Elizabeth and put up there on the website for you to see this sort of connect with what you've been hearing. There's two things you can do for us this week. One, drop by the website, click on the donate button, and send us a donation. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back to you in the mail, our way of saying thank you very much. The show is built on a model of advertising and donations to, to help make it work. The second thing is, um, well, maybe there's second sort of a, of a combined thing, but here... Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Find us on Facebook and share the show. Let other people know about it. Post it to your friends. Talk to people about it. Certainly get the word out there about Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much to you, listener. Okay, that's it. It's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi. 
Hi, this is Elspeth Beard, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 